0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, episode 109. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Francis Gulland, senior scientist at the Marine Mammal Center and a member of the International Committee for the Recovery of the Vaquita. This committee is composed of the world's top vaquita experts, and they just released a new report which contains some shocking revelations. Before we jump into our interview with Francis, however, I'm going to check in with EOC producer Sean Bogle to get an update on our Vaquita documentary project, Souls of the Vermilion Sea. We have a new half-hour film associated with this project that we are about to release, and Sean's here to explain the the inspiration behind uh, this new release, as well as our outreach goals moving forward with the project. This
1: film, although it seems to put a a huge emphasis on Vaquita... There is an equal amount of urgency on the uh, the people, the communities that are involved in this. And this means the fishing communities, that means the, the biologists that have been doing this since day one. So this issue has always been in their mind, and they've continued on. And all they've seen during their entire career is the population decline. And when you know this, and you have these one-on-one conversations with them and you're inside their homes and you're sharing a meal with them, they really alter the way you feel or I I personally feel when I'm thinking about trying to tell the story. So I don't, I wanted to create a story that just wasn't a bunch of, and I may have said this several times before, but regurgitated headlines in the process of us doing the research. That's what I saw. So I didn't want to just keep repeating what was already going out there. And still to this day, the developments of what's happening with the vaquita is, it's just the, it's the same stuff all over again. There's no personal connection. The media is really painting a picture of how the vaquita is is going to go extinct. So this is more of a, have a sympathy or empathy for an animal, but you must realize that we all live on a planet where we need to coexist. And the choices that you make in conserving a species also affects the people that live in those same environments and that is the component that's missing that the media is not touching on and that's what our story is is adding to so it's in addition to which makes it not only more comprehensive but this is where the connection happens this is where we're trying to make people realize and understand that we're not alone and we want people to get in touch with realizing that we can we can try to save all the species all we want to, but we have to do that together, and we have to understand why we are doing it.
0: We experienced this this moment on this shoot in the spring of of 2016, and and I think I mean you kind of expressed that feeling that that I felt like we had, which was we were feeling this sense of urgency within the community, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just about the vaquita; a lot of it was about the vaquita, especially for us. But um, it wasn't just about the vaquita, it's about the tatuaba. It's about the community. And it really felt like this community was going through a crisis. And part of that was because of vaquita, but that's not all of it. A huge part of it was this illegal trade in tatuaba swim bladders and this increase in the illegal activity within the community. Um, and you know, we were seeing the influence of drug cartels that were smuggling the swim bladders um, and, and just hearing some really troubling uh, stuff. From, from the fishermen that, that we were interacting with down there. Um, and, and I think, you know, that that whole picture, you know, I think that inspired us to say, essentially, like, we, we can't wait any longer. Like, we can't wait, you know, I feel like we were waiting, we were going down there and we were shooting and we were waiting for, like, something dramatic to happen that would sort of indicate to us That, oh, this is, like, this feels like a natural conclusion to the story, right? And now we can jump into post-production and start putting together our feature-length film, right? But I think we realized in that moment that, like, it might take years for that moment to happen, and we needed to tell, we needed to express what we were seeing immediately, you know, because... If we wait, you know, if we wait for this this sort of moment that feels like a natural conclusion to the story, it, 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 it's probably going to be too late for, for the Vaquita, certainly, and might be too late for the community as well. So, like, what happened next? I mean, you know, we, we, we sort of had this, this moment where we sort of, you know, made this this important decision um, that we were going to jump in and start going through footage and, and, and try to piece something together. We kind of had this, this target length of maybe half hour in mind. Where do we go from there? I mean, what, what was that post-production process like jumping into that? What was that like for you?
1: Honestly, it was uh, no idea where to even start. We're really trying to figure out who our target audience would be. The people of Mexico, or, or more specifically, the, the fishing communities. People of the U.S. who are completely oblivious for the most part, about this issue altogether, um, but yet do play a role in as far as where they get their seafood from, um, which is, is coming exactly from these these fishing communities. And the, the other target audience, of course, are the people in mainland China where these swim bladders are being smuggled and sold. And there are three different completely perspectives on... What's happening, and a lot of it is the information is not there for any one of them, and and, a, and a, like a nice clean uh, pot where you can just you know look at it and go, oh, this, these are all the ingredients. It's not like that. It's it's very fragmented. Everybody has a different feel on that. So when we identified, okay, these are the target audiences, we then had to, oh gosh, the, the story was well, it was all over the place. Not sure exactly what components we had. To tell, it seems to me that releasing the shorter versions, like the 13-minute cut, and then now the 30-minute cut, and whatever we release in the future, releasing these in such a way where the time span between them that keeps the information relevant, um, but then also it will help us gauge exactly what our next step is, especially when we do these screenings that we have coming up in March in Mexico.
0: Yeah, for sure, and, and I mean, I, I think you're right that, that that balancing act that we have been playing between these different, these different target groups who, who we want to reach and who we think it's most important to reach with this message contained within the film, they're very disparate, right? And so it, that was sort of the, I think, our greatest challenge in, in piecing this thing together was, you know, creating a message that we could put out there that would resonate with both... People in Hong Kong and people in mainland China, um, as well as people in these uh, small fishing communities in the Upper Gulf uh, in Mexico. So, what's next? I mean, you, you, you talked a lot about sort of our thought process and, and, and how tricky it was to sort of formulate this story and, and, and make sure that it's something that folks in these these fishing communities, which are the epicenter of this, you know, our story and and, and this issue. Um, that that this would be something that would benefit them, that would sort of get them thinking about this issue. So what's next? You know, now that the film is just about complete, what are we doing with it? Where are we going with it?
1: We've shared the film with a variety of the groups that have been involved with this issue for quite a bit. And we've also shared it with groups that have jumped on the campaign later on, but are definitely pulling some serious weight and making some new headway. And now... In order to really make this this film more acceptable, we are planning to go down to the Upper Gulf and the towns of San Felipe and Santa Clara and do some community screenings. And the, the, the goal behind that is to use this as an opportunity so that they can see the way that we have framed the story and then for them to offer feedback as far as How the film makes them feel and not just the fishermen, the communities themselves, because the businesses, the restaurants, everything has been impacted by this. And it's that feedback that will help us continue to tell this story because we then know who that audience is um, and that we would like to, of course, do this in China as well, but one step at a time. Uh, But that's that's essentially our goal that will happen at the end of March We'll go down there and do that. And then, you know, because we're there, we're going to continue filming because it is essentially the height of the Tatoaba fishing period. And uh, as much as I've been with the, the contacts we have down there, it's extremely rampant right now. It's There's no signs of letting up whatsoever.
0: That's an important point for us to make and, and for, I guess, our audience to be aware of is that, you know, we, we have just about completed this this half-hour cut of, of our film, which we feel is like a pretty, you know, I mean, it's it's not all-inclusive, right? But we feel like it's, it's the most comprehensive uh, uh, story out there that shows uh, all these different aspects of the issue and, and what's going on with the Vaquita and the Tatuaba and these communities in the Upper Gulf. But this is not over, right? I mean, the issue is certainly not over, um, and our film uh, is certainly not over. We are going to continue shooting for this, The goal remains to eventually put together a feature-length documentary um, about this. And and I think the announcements that have come out over the past couple of months, I think, have really sort of shown us how important it is for us to continue to document what's going on with this issue. We now know that as of the end of 2016, there were only 30 Vaquitas left, which is a 50% decline from... The previous year, the end of 2015, it was mm-hmm. estimated that were 60. Um, that's actually an increase in the rate of decline um, from previous years, which is shocking and and scary. And you know, as Sean, as you just said, I mean, we are in the height of this year's illegal totoaba fishing season. So right now, fishermen are going back out. So like when we say there's 30 vaquita left, we mean as of the end of 2016 before the height of the illegal tatuaba season began. But now that illegal tatuaba fishing season has begun. Fishermen are going out, putting illegal gill nets in the water. So who knows how many? I mean, we really don't know. We're once again in this situation, right, where we, we don't really know how many of are left. Right, we know it's right. probably less than 30 at this point. Um, but we're not going to know sort of what the, the true impact of this year's illegal tatuaba fishing season is until the end Of 2017, when we finally start to get those results in from the remote acoustic monitoring program.
1: I would like to mention though, I mean, all this attention is going on the Vaquita and it's important because we're down to very few numbers, but there hasn't been a report of Vaquita mortality in a while, since last spring. That's not to say that has not happened. I think that at this point, people are not going to want to report that. So if they catch a Vaquita in their net, they're probably going to sink it what is obvious, and this is, this is where you pretty much can do simple math, is that there have been countless reports of other marine mammals getting caught in these nets. We're talking adult whales, gray whales, humpback whales, dolphins, sharks, rays. I just saw a report today, another dead dolphin, same thing. It's got gillnet marks on it. Everyone needs to realize that whatever happens to the vaquita... There are other species out there that are also declining. It just happens so that they are not on the cusp of extinction, but they're headed that way.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a really good point. There hasn't been a, a recovery of a dead vaquita since last spring, March of 2016, when we were down to Mexico immediately after those reports of those three dead vaquitas that were found. Um, and that was like big news i mean that was international news when when sea shepherd and and those other folks you know found those uh uh, vaquita carcasses and almost certainly at this point because of what happened in the spring of last year with all of the press that those uh vaquita recoveries got that fishermen are not if they do pull up their net and there's a dead vaquita in that net they're going to make sure that nobody else can find that carcass i think you can say that with a pretty high degree of certainty, right? And even last year in spring of 2016, while we were down there, we were hearing rumors about um, additional vaquita carcasses that had turned up that local fishermen had hidden. Yes, that's great. So I think that was already happening last year, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, this year we're probably not going to get any of those reports of, you know, vaquita, dead vaquitas, you know, washing up on the beach or being found by the sea shepherd boat. Because almost almost certainly the fishermen who pull out those dead animals um, are going to be hiding those carcasses. So we, we've painted this very dire picture, which we always sort of seem to do whenever we have these discussions about the vaquita. Of course, the experts and and the the researchers who are studying the vaquita have essentially at this point come together and said that they are going to attempt to bring vaquita into a captive setting. They're going to attempt to live trap vaquita, um, set up some form of C-pen that they can place those animals in. Um, just to protect them um, and keep them safe, because it's obviously not a safe environment just out in the open water in the upper Gulf of California right now. So we're not going to delve into that topic in depth, because Sean, you actually recorded an interview with uh, Dr. Francis Gulland, who is on that committee, the International Committee for the Recovery of the Vaquita.
1: So yes, I reached out to Francis Gulland, who is the senior scientist at the Marine Mammal Center. And I... Simply reached out to her to to get an update on what it is exactly that this announcement of Vaquita Captures is all about. And honestly, I'll just let Francis do most of the talking Um, as this is it's still in development. um, And we're just staying really close to this because obviously we are striving to get on that vessel so that we can continue documenting because this is another component the story that we did not foresee. So yeah, let's listen to Francis. Francis will explain it quite well. Hello and welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. And on today's show, we have Dr. Francis Gulland, Senior Scientist at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, California.
2: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, Francis, we've spoken before um, at the very beginning of our project when we launched our Souls of the Vermilion Sea um, film project, which is about the struggle to save the vaquita from extinction. And although people are, f- are familiar with uh, some of your background, could you just give us a brief summary and overview of exactly what your occupation is and what you do? Um, and, well, you know, are there any other hats that you wear besides being senior scientists at the Marine Mental Center?
2: Uh, certainly. I'm a veterinarian by training, so my initial involvement with Lavaquita was um, necropsy work and uh, you know, diagnosing causes of death in animals that were recovered, uh, dead. Um, but I also serve currently as commissioner to the U.S. Mammal Commission. And the Mammal Commission in the U.S. is an oversight agency for the federal government that's uh, mission is to ensure the conservation of marine mammals and our jurisdiction is obviously U.S. waters, but we also have a role in international conservation of marine mammals
1: Because we've just recently transferred power and we're in a new administration, are you still involved in that at this point?
2: Certainly. The, the commission um, is still a federal agency, and the commissioners are appointed by the president and by the White House and Senate confirmed. So... We serve until replaced, so I was appointed by President Obama and I'm honored to serve him and will continue to serve the commission until replaced.
1: That's a very big uh, responsibility, um, and I know that there's a whole wonderful team of people that are also a part of that. Uh, so I, whatever the outcome may be, I hope it's a, po- a positive one. Um, so uh, you have been involved previously in the recovery of species before. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about your experience um, as far as like, you know, what species those were and what the outcome was?
2: Um, well, our main work here at the Mugamel Centre has been with the Hawaiian monk seal as far as endangered species. And that's because of our strong background in pinniped um, care, rehabilitation and and release. So we built a monk seal hospital in, in Hawaii where we rehabilitate malnourished or orphaned monk seal pups and then release them back to the northwest Hawaiian Islands. And that also has an outreach and education program attached to it. So that's probably our, our biggest um, current program here at the centre for uh, endangered mammals With the commission, we're involved in a whole suite of, of projects and um, programs for endangered species worldwide uh, in fact, we've just returned from a trip to the Mekong River in Cambodia, where the Commission's been supporting conservation efforts for the Irrawaddy river dolphin mm-hmm. on the Mekong. Um, so that is a population that is threatened by bycatch and gill nets, very similar to the vaquita mm. in the upper Gulf of Mexico.
1: Um, just briefly. Uh the monk seal, as far as you know, what 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 drove involvement to recover the species? I mean, was it also on the threshold of extinction, and where does it where does it stand now? What sort of uh, effort had to be put in place in order to, you know, are, are they stable? Uh,
2: so the monk seal population has been declining for about twenty years, um, and and the population was at, you know about a thousand animals, but. Um, uh, they're hovering at about 1,200, 1,100, but but a steady, consistent decline um, over the past 20 years. And over the past five years, there's been a huge amount of investment from from National Marine Fisheries Service, from various NGOs on the Hawaiian Islands, um, from us at the Miamul Centre, to really um, enact a, a suite of conservation actions. Um, some of it has been outreach to people living on the main Hawaiian islands because monk seals have now moved into the main Hawaiian islands and they're a significant part of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of uh, work with fishermen to use circle hooks instead of hooks that are barbed that can damage uh, monk seals' throat if they eat them. There's been work to remove marine debris from the northwest Hawaiian islands. And then the real Centre's role has been to rehabilitate um, young and malnourished juveniles so to enhance their survival so they can basically grow up and contribute to the adult breeding population. So we opened our hospital um, three years ago, and we've now released 15 monk seals, and we have four currently in rehabilitation, and that's about you know 1% of the current population. So in fact, this year, um, National Marine Fisheries Service has announced the official year of the monk seal, and it's the first time that the population has not declined um, in the last you know, few decades. So we're very excited that perhaps this is a time of, of turnaround and that we are seeing, if not yet full recovery, at least we're seeing um, no further decline um, this year.
1: So essentially it's just it kind of plateaued, at least for the moment. It's on the teeter?
2: I mean, it's you could really say that when you're looking at you know, 50 years' worth of data. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can say that last year's census did not show... A further decline compared to the year before and the year before that. So numbers are stable right now. We hope that that continues and that um, the population starts to, to really recover and build up.
1: So, with with everything that you've been doing with the Hawaiian monk seal, um, what made you um, all of a sudden decide to jump on this vaquita campaign? Like, at, wh- at what point did you learn about the vaquita and actually start becoming involved? Um, you know, with the vaquita and then the issues that, that mm-hmm. face its survival? Well,
2: I've been aware of the
1: fate of the vaquita or the
2: status and the concern of immortality for 20 years, I think. Um, uh, when I first came to the U.S., um, I uh, assisted in a workshop to, to um, train students in necropsy techniques in Baja, and the main species we used for for the necropsy workshop was with the Keita carcasses that had been bycaught in gillnets, so we had four carcasses then for a workshop, and even then um, the population was in decline. So here we are, you know, 20 years later, where the problem is much more acute. And uh, I joined SERVA about three three years ago, um, really through my role as the commission, and also as a vet um, concerned about you know,
1: mortality. And uh, just for our audience, can you please tell us what SERVA is? Server is
2: the international recovery team for the vaquita, the Comité Internacional para la Recuperación de la Vaquita. Oh, very nice.
1: <laughs> are, you, are you fluent in Spanish with all the time that you spent down there? I'm not fluent, but I can understand. <laughs> I can get by. Um, so, gosh, I, you know, I actually never knew that, that you had this, this uh, experience prior to all this. I thought you just got involved. I had no idea that you actually were conducting... Necropsies on carcasses. Um, back then, was there anything, you know, what exactly was being done? Are they just accepting these carcasses on the beach? I mean, were they, was there No, any- no,
2: there's always been, there's been continual work. Um, really, Lorenzo Ross's group have been working with the fishermen for years on alternative gear techniques, on reducing um, basically any attempt to reduce gillnet bycatch. There just um, hadn't been a gillnet ban by the federal government until recently. Hmm. There's been a lot of, of
1: of work in the community. you know, coming from that point in your life to where we are now, I mean it's it's radically different, and the fact that you've much like you know I've had many conversations with Lorenzo and Barbara Taylor. and uh, at this point when when the people, the general public are now receiving this information, they're seeing a very small pocket of window window of like of what's happened and what and what has happened. But for someone who has seen it just kind of play out, I mean, that's it has to be unsettling on many levels um, and almost have a sense of helplessness. So how do you actually initiate and then sustain your involvement with trying to save uh, a species from extinction? I mean, do you have a sense of hope at the very beginning and then, you know, a sense where we are now? Like, does it seem like the... the I think you'll always have to have hope. I mean...
2: Otherwise, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning and, and do the work that we do. So I, I think everyone working in conservation um, always has hope, and and you have to have hope to, to keep going. Um, but often times are hard, and often uh, projects don't work, um, and often some of the challenges are, are still there every day. But uh, I think if we didn't get up and have hope, we wouldn't keep fighting the, the good fight, as we say.
1: Right, right. Well, that's uh, that's you're. I mean, you're absolutely right on that. That's essentially why we're even making the film. I, otherwise, uh, if if it seemed like a lost cause, if we, I guess it would have been completed a while ago. Um, you know, I was at the Serva Seven meeting last year in Ensenada, Mexico, and that was actually the first time that the environmental minister had ever attended any Serva meeting, mm-hmm. and uh, the announcement of the Vaquita population during that time was 60 mm-hmm. individuals remaining mm-hmm. and now that the new numbers for 2016 mm-hmm. um have been announced by SERVA the population has been cut in half to 30 mm-hmm. individuals mm-hmm. you know we've been filming for two years now mm-hmm. and We've been down there, and we've seen a variety of efforts from outreach to military to advocacy uh, to uh, you know the fishermen being a, you know trying to be a part of the solution. Um, of course, there's still a lot of legal fishing going on. Are we doing enough? I mean, if the population has been cut in half, and you know, I personally have witnessed that there's there is something being done, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't seem to be enough where are we at this point? Like, I don't, I guess it's difficult for me t- to see this because it seems like, okay, well, if you have all these people that are trying to save the Vaquita, well, then at this point we should see either some sort of stabilization or a decline that's not so radical. But the, the fact that the population has been cut in half is, you know, that's got to raise a lot of questions. I mean, are we doing enough? And if not, what else should we be doing?
2: Well, there's still... As you say, there's still illegal fishing going on. So clearly, we aren't doing enough to stop illegal fishing. It's still happening. So there needs to be, you know, more enforcement of, of the gillnet ban. You know, the Mexican government has uh, passed a, a gillnet ban, and and it's not being 100% enforced. So it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's partially or or you know m- small. Um, uh, percentage of illegal fishing as long as there are gill nets in the water the keto will will die in gill nets and that's what's happening so we need more enforcement and we need to continue the sunken gill net removal program that was started last summer um, and has continued in the fall and will be picked up again this spring and and it continues to pull up um, sunken and active Gill nets. So there are still gill nets in the water. It's really as simple as that. And as long as there are gill nets in the water, they all catch Fakita. So we need to do more to get those gill nets out and to prevent other gill nets being put in. Which is basically enforcement and continual removal of gear.
1: Right. So this stuff needs to work in tandem, though. I mean, it's not one thing or the other. Like Absolutely. they have to they have to work together. So when you mm-hmm. say that there's there's um, you know you need more enforcement when you have you know 500 army troops and another 600 Navy and you have two helicopters military helicopters uh, doing aerial surveys and you have uh, uh, small planes doing surveys and the presence of military and roadblocks rampant like how much more needs to be done like how is that how is that not enough well, enforcement like where, where is the leak here because that's what it seems like well to me. that isn't actually happening every
2: day if you go out in the water with the sea Shepherd the, the sea Shepherd, Conservation Society they're out there with their vessels and um, I've visited a couple of times and and yes all those those uh, assets in the, in the Mexican Navy uh, are, they are around but not 24 hours a day every day in the Vaquita Refuge so there are times when there's there's no enforcement and illegal fishermen know when those windows are
1: right yeah, yes
2: I- it's not enough
1: Right, I mean, I've been following um, the headlines coming out, and it seems like they're doing arrests every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just swim mm-hmm. bladders uh, being, and, that, and that's just the ones that, that they caught. Um, uh, now, so with everything that we've said thus far, now is what, what are the next steps? I mean, knowing everything we do, like, what, what are we supposed to do? now I mean just much of the same or are we now going to come up with something completely different in addition to everything else that we've been doing because mm-hmm. I feel like we're spinning our wheels here
2: um, so, the, so the current main actions are to get sunken gill nets out of the water so to continue to use grappling hooks and and do transit lines through the Vakida refuge and every time something is, is picked up on a grappling hook, pull that out of the water. So a continued effort to remove anything that could entangle a vaquita in the water. Um, continue to work with the Mexican government on enforcement and um, prolonging the gill net ban. Because that does expire in April. And then, because there's so few animals left, um, because the concern of extinction is, is really high now... Um, One of the techniques that's been used in other critically endangered species is to temporarily remove those animals from the habitat if they can't be protected in the habitat and simply protect them until their environment is safe again. So that really means catching the keda and placing them in a a net pen or an above-ground pool where they can be protected from gillnets. And then as soon as that area is gillnet-free, so... Anything something has been removed and enforcement is 100%, then release them back to the wild. So there is a, a lot of effort going on right now from the international community that's familiar with handling and catching and housing cetaceans on developing a plan to do just that.
1: The idea of capturing vaquita for a potential captive breeding program. But stop. So okay. no one said captive breeding. There's a.
2: Okay. this is a very jump from um, people who hear about the effort to okay. temporary house to captive breeding, that's okay. a number of okay. steps down the line, the first step is to catch animals and just place them in a sanctuary where they're protected from gill net bycatch, and ideally protect them for a couple of years and release them again, so if they're in captivity for a long time in a sanctuary, then they would breed, but the aim right now is not captive breeding, the aim is temporary protection from
1: gillnets. Okay. Well, is that even possible? Well, we don't know until we try. I mean, has there been any other attempt with uh, another porpoise in the past?
2: Uh, Uh, Yes, there's a very successful program right now for the Yangtze um, finless bobois in China, where um, porpoises have been caught from the Yangtze River and translocated to oxbows along the in China. And those animals um, have not only survived the transport, but are breeding, and the population has increased to a level that they're now expanding the program into um, two further oxbows. So there is a history, actually, with porpoises um, in China that's been very successful.
1: That's amazing, but can we apply the same type of effort and expectations that the vaquita, or is, it, wh- is there a grey area or unknown with the vaquita because we don't know that much about the vaquita well no one's,
2: no one has caught and housed vaquita before, so every species is different, and until you work with a species, you don't know how they'll respond, but there's a lot of work, um, and a lot of uh, experience from catching, uh, tagging housing, harbor porpoises finless so um, the question really is how will Vaquita respond to, to that type of handling?
1: Now, I, I assume that this, uh, this idea to locate and capture Vaquita is not taken lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been, it seems to be a very controversial issue. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of opposition mm-hmm. towards this. Mm-hmm. Um, I recall at uh, the server meeting... In your mm-hmm. conversation with Paciano, there was some mm-hmm. reluctance initially when he had mentioned, "Hey, why don't we don't why don't we mm-hmm. just corral them up?" And, and it's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that moment that you had this, you know, when he kind of pitched this idea,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: you uh, essentially had to explain, "Well, this is kind of what goes into it. We don't have enough information at this point." You know, mm-hmm. what was that threshold that all of a sudden? you know, this reluctance to like, Now we actually need to implement this and we need to do it relatively
2: mm-hmm. soon. Um, well, I think that the reality is that the decline has continued. So over the last year, there's been a 50% decline. So that extreme decline, when you have a population under 100, um, means that they will be extinct in a couple of years if nothing different happens. So when you're really faced with extinction in the face um, then you really have to look at all options that that are out there for trying to save a species and, and um, ex-situ conservation is one of those tools and it's not being commonly used for marine mammals and it's hard and challenging and controversial but those aren't reasons for not trying uh, if the alternative is extinction
1: So, so what are the risks involved?
2: Uh, the risks are animals being stressed by handling, um, so an animal could easily die when handled. Uh, animals could get entangled in in nets, so there's risks to each individual animal when you handle them.
1: Okay, and well, and, and just with what you said, that's that's still worth the, the, the you know to to follow through with this, even though there's the potential to contribute to. Well,
2: you can do the math if you handle an animal and you kill one. Then you've killed one animal, and then you can stop and reassess your program. Mm. Currently, not doing this in the last year, thirty animals have died.
1: I mean, are you getting are you are you hearing uh, any negative feedback from other people about approaching this animal rights groups? Or I mean, I don't I don't really who knows knows about it at this point. I I think uh, I think um,
2: we we know from the California condor example. But there was a huge amount of controversy about bringing condors and capturing, removing eggs of condors, of captive breeding condors, and and, um, not everyone agrees to this day whether that was the right thing to do or not. Um, The facts are that condors still exist and the population is breeding in the wild, and they um, soon will also be flying over the hills of Oregon. So, I think if it had not been for that program, we wouldn't have condors today. And there are, there are many examples of species that, have, that exist now because of captive breeding programs, such as the Arabian Oryx, Presbalsky Horse, Mexican Red Wolf. Um, so, you know, it is a tool that, that can be successful. We don't know how well it will work for vaquita, uh, and we won't until we try but we do know that there's currently a 50% decline, so they, if nothing else changes, they will be extinct by um, 2020. Um, so we need to continue, as I said earlier, with the gillnet ban. We need to increase enforcement. We need to remove sunken gillnets. Um, but we should also consider uh, temporary protection in in a sanctuary if none of those are working.
1: One of the other things I, w- I would be curious to know is... What what does this capture um, effort look like? Like what 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 sort of planning has to go into this, and what sort of team needs to oversee it, like as far as putting them together as experience to get the best outcome they possibly can.
2: Sure. So the the, the team is really tra- um, international experts who have worked with other cetaceans before. So um, currently there is a, a group of people that. Um, have experience in capturing, in housing, in feeding, and in veterinary care of a range of small cetaceans. So that's the the current effort is to really harness the world's best that could make this successful.
1: And and the you know. It- do you guys already have the plan already set in motion as far as, like, what what you have to do? And when when is it going to happen as far as what's the... Those what's are all the, moving targets at this point. Okay. Yeah. But is there an ideal time to do it? I mean, obviously, the, the height of the, the 12 is illegal efficient is going to happen
2: mm-hmm.
1: March, April.
2: Yeah. Well, this is... Uh, a lot of these questions are we don't know the answers to yet. I and mean, this is, you know... I'm an American. I'm sitting in California. <laughs> so we're talking about... a a capture effort, a sanctuary in in Mexico. So this would be a Mexican sanctuary in Mexican waters, run by Mexican people for Mexican animals. So many of these questions, we can give advice, and we can we can develop a plan, and we can bring experts from Europe and China to the table. But ultimately, the plan has to be led by Mexico.
1: So they the vaquita, if anywhere to be um, captured, would reside in the their environment, just in mm-hmm. an in a enclosed safety. Yeah. You know, so in San Felipe or Santa Clara or something like this is a that
2: would be the ideal ideal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now there has been uh, an announcement that the U.S. Navy has now gotten involved um, per request of uh, the Mexican Navy and. They are going to use trained dolphins, a part of their marine mammal program, to locate Vaquita. Mm-hmm. That sounds very sci-fi uh, for, for many people, just because you're using a marine mammal to locate another marine mammal in hopes to locate so that they can capture. That's essentially the, the premise. Is that correct? hmm So what, what is that process as far do you know much about exactly what that looks like i mean how does a dolphin locate a vaquita and and you know the other thing that comes to mind is with all the nets are, is are there any concerns that the dolphins are going to get entangled
2: mm-hmm. in
1: these nets especially with there's so many of them around so that the navy's mammal program has i mean it's been running for
2: years and the dolphins are trained to recover sunken objects there they've been very successful at um uh, they've been doing a humanitarian exercise in in the Mediterranean, removing, recognizing and detecting unexploded ordnance that then has been recovered by divers. So that is what they're trained to do: is to to identify objects. And in this case, it will be vaquita rather than than a, a, a mine or a or a military object that needs to be recovered. So. I don't train dolphins um, <laughs> I just know that they have a very successful program and that they've offered to assist so the issue right now is that vaquita is so rare they're very hard to see and you obviously know that from trying to, to, to film them so any way that we can in, in, enhance our ability to find them um, is great so if the dolphins can find them when we can't that's a, it's another tool to help us find vaquita
1: and it's, well, it's, it's quite an amazing <laughs> idea, really. Um, so what, what is, what is ideal as far as, uh, uh how many vikita? you know, I understand that we don't know if we're going to catch any, you know, if any, mm-hmm. gonna get caught at all, mm-hmm. but what, what is ideal? And then also is there, you know, there's obviously have to keep in mind male and female, um, especially if you're considering, you know, reproduction. Mm-hmm. So, what is, what is ideal and what do you think is likely?
2: The current plan that's being developed is a stepwise approach to reduce risk to individuals. So at each step of the way, the program would be assessed by an external review panel um, with the aim of you know, assessing what's happening in the environment, what's happening with the gill net removal, and, and how the individual vaquita has responded to, to capture and handling and housing. So there's a whole series of steps, and every single step would be reviewed, and and a decision would be made whether to continue to the next step. So if you're going to be risk averse, the first step is to catch one, mm-hmm. and simply see All how right. that animal responds. So that's that's the ideal for the first step. Is okay, one, one, um, and then if that goes well, two, and if that goes well, three. You know, but at every point you have to assess what's happening. In the field, what's happening with the gill nets removal? What's happening to the rest of the population? And then how the animals responding to to capture and housing? So it's a moving target and a and a and a really a um, adaptive management approach.
1: So when I think about the potential for some sort of disaster, the kita, you know, dying in this this process. Um, Surely that's a heavy weight to bear on those involved. I mean, how would that, mm-hmm. how does that affect you personally, just knowing that that, e- that, mm-hmm. that even exists, you know, it's, you would be waiting, you know, in anticipation?
2: So, so I'm a veterinarian. Every time I work with an animal, there's a risk of it dying. I mean, if you handle a wild animal, you have to decide whether the risk is warranted. So you have to decide, am I handling this animal? Why am I handling this animal? Is it, you know, does it have a disease that's incurable? Can I intervene and in some way save it? And that's a decision you make every time you handle an animal. So currently, for me, if I handled a Bikita and it died, of course it would be extremely upsetting. But if we don't try and handle them, just in the last year, 30 animals have died. So it's... It's a question of a risk to an individual, but trying to save some of the population for the future and for future generations.
1: What would you say to um, the people out there that are either extremely emotional about this or on the fence because they don't quite have all the facts or understanding?
2: Also, currently the population is declining and there are, you know, last year there were 60 animals, and they are declining. The population is going down, it's gone down 50% over the last year. So I think most people can go 60, 30, 15, 7, 3, you know, one and a half, zero. So that means that we're looking at extinction over, you know, the next five years. So something has to change. So we either... Um, we need to get rid of all the gill nets in the water, we need to increase enforcement, and then we need to protect every individual that's left. And we just have to think of every way that we can do that. Um, so currently, if people want to know more, the Viviva Kita website has a lot of information and have discussed um, the pros and cons of, of ex-situ. The Mariamal Center's website has most of the reports from server and other documents that, that really describe what's happening um, by, by different organizations. The Sea Shepherd Conservation Society has an excellent website and Facebook and they um, you know, are, are very active on the water right now on both derelict gear removal and um, enforcement in collaboration with the Mexican Navy. So, so really, any, if anyone wants to get involved, it's really through supporting um, the efforts of any of those organisations. The um, ex-situ effort is being led by the National Rememoral Foundation, and they also have a website and are uh, accepting donations for that project. So, so people can support any of, of those efforts, the Sea Shepherd Conservation View of Akita, the Mewal Centre's Vakita Fund, National Mewal Foundation... Um, those are all ways to, to become involved.
1: Well, I would like to thank you for coming on our our show today. It's nice that you shared, you know, shed some light on, on the issue. There's there's a lot of unknowns out there, especially when I'm trying to piece this up together. So you've definitely helped me understand a little bit more about this. Of course, there's still a lot more digging to do, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know, I guess we'll we'll uh, watch very closely and see what ends up happening. So mm-hmm. thank you, Francis, for uh, coming on our show. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome.
0: All right, that was EOC producer Sean Bogle's conversation with Dr. Francis Gulland, Vaquita expert and senior scientist at the Marine Mammal Center. As difficult as it is to hear about how dire the situation is for the Vaquita, there is a glimmer of hope in this story. With the failure of Mexico's gillnet ban to have any positive impact on the vaquita population, the International Committee for the Recovery of the Vaquita has finally recognized that attempting to place animals in a captive setting is the only remaining option for the species. This remains extremely controversial, and you'll notice how defensive Dr. Golan got in that interview when Sean used the words captive breeding. But to me, this indicates that it is not time to give up hope. Wildlands' very first project was the documentary Scavenger Hunt about the recovery of the California condor, and the parallels between these two conservation efforts are striking. The vaquita population is now at just about the same point that the California condor population reached in the early 1980s, at which time a similar decision was made to bring animals into captivity and launch a captive breeding program. This was extremely controversial when implemented for California condor population, just as it will be for the vaquita, but we know that it worked for the condor. Obviously, there are many differences between these two situations, but I maintain that if it was possible to save the condor, it must be possible to save the vaquita. If you'd like to learn more about vaquita conservation and the work being done by Dr. Gulland and her peers, we'll have additional information on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org EOC109. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. And if you really feel like being generous, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes Store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation Podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host Matt Podolski, along with EOC producer and contributor Sean Bogle. Our theme music is by the Humidors.